Before we get started, just a quick note. This episode took way longer than I thought it would, in part because I'm still getting comfortable with this whole podcasting thing, but mostly because at the core of the story you're about to hear is a lesson that I actually had to learn in order to finish it. It's a lesson that took weeks and weeks of introspection and hours of conversation with a very generous and willing subject. So, thanks for your patience, and enjoy. When I was a kid, there were two things I wanted to be when I grew up. A rabbi or a rock star. The rabbi thing never seemed, you know, realistic, but being a rock star, that was a goal to be attained. You know, from an 11 or 12 on, being in a very, very successful band was an imminent part of my uh, my story. That's a meet. We've been friends since we were five or six years old. Do you remember what it was? Like, what set you on that, that path? I think it's a combination of a couple of things. To some extent, some discernible talent. And then you and I just sort of growing up in the sort of shadow of the 60s and our parents' music. And it's like instead of playing Cops and Robbers, we were playing Paul and Ringo, you know? The very first time I ever composed a piece of music was in Amit's childhood bedroom. It was a song written from the point of view of a veteran coming home from the Vietnam War. I was 10. I hadn't quite mastered the whole write-what-you-know thing, but playing that song in Amit's pastel-colored room, we felt like rock stars. And for the next 20 years, we chased that feeling. Our first high school band was called Three Ring Psychosis, which we then renamed to the Magic Possum Band. Amit briefly played in Vitapup, a small but important player in the New Jersey wing of the New York Riot Girl hardcore scene. After high school, we went to Israel for a year and formed a band in a kibbutz bomb shelter, which we called Emu and the Androids. In college, there was Lefty and the Rebel, a bluegrass-slash-funk band I fronted. And if that's not humiliating enough, after we both dropped out, there was Seventh Generation, which we thought was a great name for a band. But it's also the name of a line of recycled toilet paper. There was Jason Lieben and the Uprising, Benny Girl, The Ready Set, Action Painters, Wolf in the Wayside, and then finally, The Bischoffs. And then, just around the same time, we both quit. I was never good enough to warrant absolutely making it, and I was never lucky enough to be in a band with one of those people. Yeah, it's like either you're the lead singer of The Shins, or you're the drummer in The Shins. Right. You're either undeniably talented, and, or you're really fucking lucky. One of the greatest things we all have to realize is that, um, you know, most of us are actually average. Early on in my career, I had a gig playing for a solo artist named Jason Liebman, who I thought was pretty good. He had a vibe and a voice that was flirting with that undeniable thing. We recorded a record in Manhattan, and then he booked a CD release party at CB's Gallery on the Bowery. The house was packed, the band was good, Jason was good. And after the show, I learned something that still haunts me. Turns out Q-Tip from the band A Tribe Called Quest had heard an early mix of Jason's record and demanded to meet the bass player, me. He was putting together a world tour, something Amit and I had dreamed about since we were kids, and Q-Tip thought I was the guy for him. He came down to CB's gallery that night to scout me, but he left before I got off the stage. 
For a few weeks, I waited for the phone call that would change my life, but it never came. And that little rejection defined the next two decades of my musical life. I'm not sure why exactly. Maybe it ratified some latent part of my self-doubt. Maybe it just hurt. But every single show I played, every single song I wrote, every time I tried to convince my friends to come out and see my band one more time, I had that little rejection living in my head telling me, you're not good enough, you'll never be good enough, you're probably just average. And that voice got louder and louder at every setback until eventually I quit. When you're lugging your shit into a, to a club and begging your same 14 friends to come, it's like, hey, this isn't fun anymore. And I really haven't played much drums since then, you know? Do you miss it? Um, I miss it, but not as, not as much as I thought I would. I do. I miss it a lot. So this is First Time Long Time. I'm Aaron Wolf, And today I'm going to tell you part one of a story about a baseball player that gets that same message over and over again, but never gives up on his dream. Aaron. Nate. Hey, man. Dude, where are you at these days? I'm in Maplewood, New Jersey. This is Nate Fish. He's a writer, artist, and self-proclaimed king of Jewish baseball. Amit is married to his sister, Dasi. I'm literally sitting in Dasi and Amit's house right now at my little desk where I'm, uh, I'm operating from. How, how do you like the suburbia? I like it. I've, I got a, a nice house and a, an SUV and two kids. <laughs> <laughs> Except none of them are mine. I met Dossie in November of 2007. That's a meet again. And about two, two months later, we were at her house, and it was a big deal because her brother was coming back from Argentina from some baseball trip. And, and Dossie's friend was nervous because Nate was such an amazing, good-looking, talented character that, that she was actually nervous for me, like that I would be so overshadowed by this like incredible presence. Turns out he really was a pretty impressive dude. Like he had this unbelievable smile and, and, and physique and confidence and charm. I mean, it's exactly right. Nate is beautiful in many ways. I mean, physically, he's a giant. Like the rest of his family are these small New England Jews. His father looks like a cross between Picasso's painting of the guitar player and Larry David. But Nate looks like he stepped off a coffee cup from a Greek diner. He's an Adonis. Dark, wavy hair, Mediterranean skin, broad, muscled shoulders, and gentle eyes. He is incredibly impressive. For about a week a while ago, Nate played on a co-ed softball team I coached called the Shatters. It was like if Dave Winfield was on our team for a week. <laughs> That's Jacob. I've known him almost as long as I've known Amit. The three of us were inseparable in high school. And when we were in our 30s, Jacob played left field for the Shatters. I felt really proud that he was on our team for that week. 
you know, that somehow it was like reflected on me that I would even know somebody that was so talented <laughs> that could be on our team. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Just like being that close to greatness, it made me feel somehow greater or you know, part of it. He really was amazing on the field. But the truly amazing thing was that for those few days that we all played together, I never once felt less than him. Despite the fact that we literally lost every single game that season, Nate treated us as though we were all seasoned pros deserving of attention and respect. He has this incredible commitment to the game that seems to transcend the reality of his situation. I mean, right from the first time I ever went to a Major League Baseball game, I was completely committed to the fact that I was going to be a Major League Baseball player. When was that? I, I went to my first game. Uh, it was a Red Sox game at Fenway Park. I think I was 10 years old. And but when, when we were pulling out of, of, the, of the parking lot, leaving the stadium, I was promising my family that I was going to play for the Boston Red Sox. And I was dead serious and completely focused on playing Major League Baseball my whole life. But every, literally every single kid who has ever gone to a baseball game in the history of baseball has left yeah. saying, I'm going to play in professional baseball. <laughs> That's true. I don't know. I, I, but, I, you know, I was serious about it, put the work in. I was lucky to have a little bit of natural ability. And I would, I would work, you know, every day practicing alone, doing whatever I could to try to get better. Were you... Um, obsessive about other things? No. I mean, I think I was a weird kid a little bit. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I probably had uh, ADHD, tons of energy, couldn't focus, didn't want to sit still in the classroom, wanted to run around and play ball all the time. But baseball is boring when you're 10 years old and it's three and a half hours long. Yeah, it never, it never seemed boring to me. my imagination would sort of fill in the blanks the quiet times in the game I wouldn't be bored I mean one of the craziest things that you'll see in Major League Baseball you know a game takes three hours maybe there's one or two or three balls hit to any player on the field and they never look surprised that the ball was hit to them they they're masters at being able to relax and concentrate and focus on every pitch Nate found that focusing came easy when playing baseball. That buzzing, hyperactive energy was instantly channeled into a singular pursuit. And by the time his family moved to the Shaker Heights neighborhood of Cleveland, Nate's obsession was starting to pay off. When you turn 13 years old, a couple of things happen. Uh, you go up to the big field. The kids start throwing curveballs, which, which end, that ends a lot of careers right there. But it's also if, if you like the game and if you're good, there, there's opportunities to then start playing what's called travel baseball. Nate was good and was quickly recruited to play on a team called North Coast, a kind of all-star team from Northeast Ohio. By then you're like, OK, you look in the stands and there's scouts there. Uh huh. There's radar guns. You can tell that scouts are paying more attention to some guys than other guys. You're starting to get a sense by then that, you know, that you have a chance to play at the next level. That's how early it starts. Five years after Nate made the decision to play professional baseball in the parking lot at Fenway, he's being scouted by major league organizations. While Amit and I are playing bad classic rock in his garage, the players of North Coast Travel Team are getting offers to play Division I college baseball. 
Nate gets an offer to play for Cincinnati, and for the next four years, he's the starting catcher for the University of Cincinnati varsity baseball team, surrounded by some of the most talented players in the country. There were some special guys on the team. There were a number of guys that signed contracts with major league organizations. Most of them fizzled out. Euclid was the exception. He's talking about Kevin Euclid, star third baseman for the Boston Red Sox. Euclid to deep left center field. High, deep, back towards the monster seats and gone! Euclid on his second home run of the day. The Red Sox walk off with a 5 They were close friends. When Euclid was drafted by the Red Sox during Nate's junior year, it was yet another sign that Nate was on the right track. But then came his senior year. One by one, the rest of the team was approached after games or after practices by Major League scouts. They'd chat for a minute. If they liked what they saw, the scout would hand them a small card. Name, address, stuff like that. If they loved the player, they'd get a card and a psychological evaluation to fill out. But Nate never got either one. I never ran well. Um, That was my downfall as a player. I didn't have good times. 60 yards is the uh, standard measurement for speed in baseball. If you run like a seven seconds or lower, you're considered to have average to above average speed. And my 60 times were always really bad. And at tryouts and things like that, the first thing you always do is run the 60. And if your 60 time is bad, they pretty much just cross you off the list. What, did, that, did that fuck with you? No. Um, I was convinced somehow I was going to play Major League Baseball. I mean, I, was, I had a real detachment from the reality of the situation. As long as I was on the field and I was playing, I was convinced I was going to continue to get brought along to the next level. Is there a moment in which you're just like, okay, that's that? Yeah, after my final game, senior year. You realize the season's over, the college career is over. You're, not, you're probably not going to get drafted because you haven't been talking to any of the teams. And by then the draft is like a week later. Um, I was just out on the warning track pretty much in right field, just crying my eyes out and pacing around, not wanting to take my uniform off. Yeah. I thought I was never going to put a baseball uniform on again. You know, it's your whole identity. When you talk to any of your family members or really anyone in your life, the first thing they've asked you your whole life is how is baseball going? And it's all sort of pulled out from underneath you at some point. It's this like betrayal from the world that you've convinced yourself that you are going to do something and then the world doesn't meet you halfway and give you that opportunity to be a baseball player or to be a rock star. That's the moment that you that we all have to deal with. You know, that's that's the thing, dude. I mean, I was so fucking convinced my whole life that I was like, it shook me up because it's like, what's, it's, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with the world? Why didn't my understanding of the world match up with the reality of the situation? Incredibly, there was one last chance for Nate. After the Major League Baseball draft, there was an invitation-only workout for undrafted players and free agents in Indiana. The world was reaching out to Nate. I ended up not going. Why? Uh, it was the same day as my grandmother's funeral in Boston, Massachusetts. Wow. Yeah. Was that a hard choice? No, no, no. Look, I, I wanted so badly to play professional baseball. But by that point, you, you're already 10 years in on 
practice every day, people telling you when you cut, cut your hair, when you couldn't cut your hair, what to lift, what to eat. I was coming to the end of my rope a little bit as far as the, the amount of work that I could continue doing. So no, it, it was not a hard decision at all. I didn't, even, I didn't even think about it really. That summer, Nate is faced with another dilemma. He didn't have enough credits to graduate, but he also had played four years of college ball and under NCAA guidelines, he was no longer eligible to continue to play. Being at school without baseball seemed impossible to stomach. And so, Nate made an unexpected choice. Being an athlete is such an abnormal existence that if I wasn't going to be an athlete, I was at least still committed to having an abnormal existence. So, <laughs> so I moved to New York to be an artist. Even though I had never made any art or even knew what that meant at all, I just knew it was equally as amazing as being an athlete. <laughs> Isn't that insane? It's not so insane. I mean, after we stopped playing music, Amit and I decided that the next logical step was to be comedy writers, and then novelists, and now I've sort of settled on storyteller slash screenwriter slash occasional podcaster. So... I don't know, being an artist in New York seems kind of reasonable. But here's the thing. A year after leaving Cincinnati, Nate's living in New York trying to forget baseball, working as a DJ and budding street artist, when his old college buddy Kevin Euclid finds himself at the center of baseball history. Back to full. Red Sox fans have longed to hear it. The Boston Red Sox are world champions. That fall, the Boston Red Sox win the World Series. For the first time since 1918, Boston erupts in celebration. But down in New York... I'm DJing at Uncle Ming's on Avenue B and 13th Street, watching the Boston Red Sox win the World Series on the big screen, watching Uke jump around from the DJ booth. Was that eating you up inside, or is that... We just... No, you know, I, I felt surprisingly sort of sort of nothing. I mean, I just couldn't process it. Uh, I mean, I got the, the the gravity of the situation. This was the Red Sox first championship in almost a hundred years, and there was my buddy who, who had the job that I had dreamed about having. I would have expected to be, I don't know, ecstatic or you know something, but uh, I'd expect you to be um, kind of heartbroken, actually. Well, I wasn't, you know. This reminds me. What's that fucking thing your therapist said? It's okay to be jealous but not envious? Or, like, I've literally spent 10, 20 minutes every, every couple of months being like, fuck, I got to ask Aaron. Is it okay to be envious and not jealous or not <laughs> he, jealous but not envious? He said jealousy is a sassy emotion because if you're envious, you're saying he doesn't deserve that. I deserve that. But jealousy is like, mm. I want that too. And it's this kind of so sassy so thing. Jealous is okay. Yeah. Jealous is motivating. It can be. Yeah. And envious is sort of paralyzing and depressing. Right. Amit stumbled here into one of Nate's real skills, I think. Amit and I spent decades locked in a kind of zero-sum competitive view of our creative pursuits. If he had success, that meant I wouldn't, and vice versa. That was such a huge part of like this sort of Oh God, don't tell me what they got. They booked this or, Oh my God, they had a, you know, 800 people at this show. Like you, you sort of rally 
for and pray against your community. Obviously, that's an immature and disastrous way of viewing art and friendship. But the funny thing is, it's true in sports. There are a limited number of spots on any pro team. If someone gets a spot, that means you won't. I mean, look, by the time I was 24 years old, a lot of guys that I had played against in college started popping up in the major leagues. That thing of like, they don't deserve it and I deserve it, that is like kind of depressing and, and paralyzing. And I'm curious if you if you touched that side of the things. Like, No, no, those guys earned it for sure. You do not get to the big leagues unless you deserve it. You have to be really good to get there and really good to stick around once you've gotten there. Yeah, so it's not envy. It's jealousy. And so when you see Euclid win the World Series, if anything, there's this, that fire inside of you gets brighter. Yeah. And so Nate turns back to baseball. He gets a job teaching private lessons to local kids at a baseball center in the basement of a bank on the Upper West Side. It's a high-tech place with slow-motion video cameras and motion capture technology to analyze and teach mediocre players how to be less mediocre. For the first time in my life, baseball started becoming technical and I would hit endlessly and throw endlessly and was like getting better and learning for years and years in the basement of this building. Is there a voice in your head during that time? Like, maybe this is gonna happen? Yeah. I was thinking, oh my God, I've never, I was never, I could never do the things that I'm doing now. I mean, I could stand like 10 feet away from this pitching machine that was throwing the ball like 80 miles an hour and hit like line drives right back off the machine, wow. just one after another. Now the fire's lit. Now it's proved to those guys that if it was possible, if they could see you, they would have to draft you now. Exactly, exactly. Part of not getting drafted is constantly feeling like I have to prove myself. I want guys that have played affiliated pro ball to be like, how are you not playing? Yeah, so there's an element of F you mm -hmm. to, the, to the scouts that didn't. Oh, totally, totally. If this was a sports movie, this is the training montage. Our hero cutting logs, jumping rope, getting ready for the final test. Except Nate doesn't have a final test. He's got a job in the basement of a bank. So uh, one day I was hitting in the cage and I got a phone call in the coach's room. And it was uh, Terry Goldberg, the head coach of the United States men's fast pitch softball team for the Maccabee Games. The Maccabee Games are an international showcase of Jewish athletics, which sounds kind of ridiculous, right? Something to read? Do you have anything light? How about this leaflet, famous Jewish sports legends? It's actually the third largest athletic competition in the world. Israel hosted one of the world's largest international sporting events recently. The Maccabee Games are also known as the Jewish Olympics. Athletes compete in everything from ice hockey and chess to 10-pin bowling and something called netball. Nate was on a short list of the best Jewish baseball players in the States and suddenly had the chance to represent America in softball. It wasn't the Boston Red Sox, but uh, I, I went to Philly for the tryout and made the team and went to Israel, um, and we won a gold medal there, and I was back on the field playing. Had you ever played fast-pitch softball before? No. That's not surprising, to be honest. In America, fast-pitch softball is a woman's game for the most part. And even then, the biggest stage I've ever seen it occupy is a joke on the West Wing. It seems to me if the event's over by 10, then I can be back here at 11. Yes, sir. And you know what that means. Yes, sir. It means you can watch the girls' softball game. Did you just snicker when you said that? No, sir. Yes, you did. In the 20s and 30s, fast pitch was wildly popular in rural America. And while that popularity died down in the States, there are still professional men's fast pitch teams. 
And when Nate came home, he had an offer waiting for him to play for the New York Gremlins. My girlfriend at the time thinks I'm crazy. I, I've sort of abandoned her in New York City to go play fast pitch softball, something that people don't even realize exists. She can't quite wrap her head around why am I even still pursuing this? You, you telling you telling your your buddies that you're playing fast pitch? Like, are you in touch with the guys that you played with? No one gives a shit about it, so I'm not I'm not really running my mouth about it. You know, we'd sleep four to a room or something at the tournaments and. <laughs> pull a cot in the room or something like that. It's pretty shabby, but the level of play is really, really high. It's really competitive. Whatever you're thinking about fast pitch softball, you're probably wrong. This is not your local beer league. Consider, for example, why it's called fast pitch. A professional pitcher in the major leagues throws on average about 92 miles per hour. In fast pitch softball, the average is closer to 83 miles per hour, which is slower, right? Except that in baseball, pitchers throw from 60 feet 6 inches away. In softball, they pitch from 45 feet away. The way that they throw, they also have this hop forward off of the pitching rubber that they do. So they're really throwing the ball from about 40 feet. At 40 feet, the softball batter has as much time to react to an 83 mile per hour fastball as a major leaguer does against a pitch thrown 120 miles per hour. No one in the history of baseball has thrown that hard. But it's not just the velocity. Baseball pitchers have something called the changeup. It looks like they're throwing a fastball, but the way they hold the ball makes it go about seven miles per hour slower, which throws off the batter's timing. In fast pitch softball, a changeup is about 20 miles per hour slower. The change of speed, the, 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 the reaction time, it all adds up to hitting being really difficult. In his first year with the New York Gremlins, Nate is a natural leading his team in home runs, and out there on the road playing every weekend against the best fast-pitch ball players in the world, Nate starts to think that he's got to be as good as those guys in college that were drafted into pro baseball. Most of their careers have already flamed out, but he's just getting better and better. And then, one more time, the world reaches out to him. That summer, Nate sees an article in the New York Times titled, Israel Dreams Big, as in Big League, announcing the formation of the Israel Baseball League. Right from the moment that I heard that there was going to be a professional baseball league in Israel, I was convinced it was somehow going to change my life. Why? I just had this feeling. I was like, holy shit, this is perfect. It's a baseball league in Israel. Um, I'm ready to start playing baseball again. I'm Jewish. I've been to Israel. You know, like the league was made for me and I was made for the league. This is perfect. And so I flew from Wisconsin where we were playing to the Berkshires in, in Massachusetts, to Dan Duquette's academy there for the first tryouts for the Israel Baseball League. What position you play at Cincinnati? I played infield and caught. That's from the film Holy Land Hardball, a documentary about the first and only season of the Israel Baseball League. Okay, I had a little better showing right there, but pretty good. Thanks. Can you hit? I can hit. I can hit. You can hit. I can hit. In it, Nate's eyes are glimmering. There's an innocence about his excitement. He wants to make this team the way a kid wants to get picked first in gym class. I'm not sure what I thought was going to happen. I just thought something great was going to happen. I mean, they're making a movie. I know all I know is I'm wired for sound every day. They're like cameras following me around. I'm like, shit, this is big time. A few months later, a draft is held in New York City. ESPN's Jeremy Schapp is there. It's a big deal. There are film crews, photographers. It looks almost legit. Perhaps the only player with four names, Tel Aviv selects third baseman Nate Fish. Yes, you've heard me talk enough, but I just want to say hi to my mother and father. 
sister and two friends who are here. His first professional baseball contract. But when Nate gets there, it's not quite what he had in mind. We lived at a place called Kfar Hayarok, essentially in a, in a row of storage rooms, four to a room. It was on the, camp, it was on the campus of uh, a boarding school for Ethiopian Israeli kids with behavioral problems. <laughs> <laughs> so this is like where they housed 120 professional baseball players from nine different countries. The entire league roomed together? Yeah. Yeah, we all lived together. We all rode the buses together to and from games. It was just a totally abnormal league in every way. What did you make for a 10-week season in Israel? You made uh, 2000 U.S. dollars. Wow. Yeah. You're not in for the money. No, but I still was seeking the answer to sort of how good I was at baseball. And that was a, a really good baseball league. A lot of good Dominican guys that had come out of the minor leagues guys out of Japan. And again, the feedback that I got was that I, I was pretty good. I hit third in the lineup at the All-Star game. I was awarded the uh, gold glove as the best defensive infielder in the league. That was a huge thing for me just personally to get that th- that kind of affirmation and like see where, where sort of where I stood with all these other guys that were just fresh off their minor league contracts. Ego boost aside, the league was an unmitigated disaster. There was a strike. No. Yeah. They were running up these huge debts. I mean, flights alone for Larry, the founder of the league, were like $400,000. You guys played in one season and you went on strike? Yeah. Yeah. And Larry, Larry was held by law. He was held in Israel at the end of the season because he owed so many people money. He couldn't leave the country. He can laugh about it now, but when the Israel Baseball League implodes at the end of the season, Nate's one of the walking wounded. What's the emotional fallout? The the fallout is that I return to New York. I have no apartment. I have no job. No one gives a shit that I just played in the Israel Baseball League. We think when the article comes out or when the film comes out or when I get this recognition or I I have this accomplishment that it's going to change my life somehow, and it doesn't. And that's the cycle. Hope, disappointment, hope, disappointment, hope, disappointment. And so I'm left empty afterwards. That cycle is my music career in a nutshell. I'd book a show, a good show, like at the Mercury Lounge. I'd I'd rehearse, I'd promote, I'd get excited. And then a dozen people would show up. That hope-disappointment cycle, it's just so brutal. And it's everywhere. Take, for example, Jacob. While Nate was dreaming of making it to college ball, and Amit and I were still jamming in his garage, Jacob was touring the world with the king and I. He was an undeniable talent. But even he fell victim to that boom-bust-hope cycle. Do you have a sense of when you realize, like, you weren't going to be a Broadway star? (laughs) Do you have a sense as to when your dreams crashed into a wall? (laughs) <laughs> um, right, it was it was a, a number of different realizations that happened, but one thing that really stuck out to me is like I was doing this regional theater show down in South Jersey, and it was like of a it was basically like a sitcom live on stage performed for like 
50 people in the audience and, you know, half the time, half the seats were empty, you know, and, you know, it was actually a hard job to get, like I didn't work hard to get it. And I don't know, it was just one of those moments of like, where am I? What am I doing with my life? You know, this is just, this is hurting. And, you know, I love this dream. I love, I love acting. I love theater. Um, but it just wasn't working for me anymore. I felt like I was always just waiting for my life to happen. And I just didn't want to wait anymore. I don't know. Back in New York, Nate struggles. He gets a job at the front desk of a gym. He teaches some private baseball lessons, but he can't shake this feeling that he's not progressing, that maybe, just maybe, it's time to call it quits. And uh, I got a phone call from this team in Germany, and they said that they needed somebody and that uh, the season started in one week and they needed me there Wednesday of that week, which was like three days later. And uh, I had had a bunch of arm pain. Uh, I was starting to get older. I was convinced that the Israel League was going to be my last season. Nate turns down the offer. He's finally ready to give it all up. But the next day, he goes out to brunch and mentions the phone call to his friends who thinks he's absolutely nuts to turn down a chance to play more pro ball. I I reconsidered and compared it to what I was doing in New York. And I walk outside, I call the guy back, and uh, I ask him if the offer still stands. He says it does, and I, I go to Germany like two days later. And this is the part that I just don't understand. This simple act of saying yes over and over again, despite body aches and heart aches and disappointments and failures, it's a mystery to me. And look, some of it may be that Nate just wasn't or isn't ready to grow up and get a real job and blah, 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 I'm boring myself even saying it. But there is something fundamentally essential about pursuing a dream, art, music, podcasting, creating a family, whatever that mystery is that keeps one going is what propelled Nate forward to say yes for one simple reason. I'm at least old enough now and smart enough by now to not have any expectations that something really spectacular is going to happen just because I'm going to play baseball in Germany. It was fun. It was less pressure. That's it. It was fun. I wrestled with Nate over this point for five hours. Five hours. And I swear to God, the only explanation I have for how long it took me to get to this simple point is that I must never have really enjoyed making music. Because of course that's the only way to move forward past the pain and confusion of rejection. Work hard, have fun doing it. Don't have expectations, enjoy the process. Germany wasn't going to be another test for Nate. It was going to be a relief. One of the interesting things about the Germany trip was uh, that I I lived in a mental hospital next to the field. I don't know if I ever told you that. Can you fucking believe that? What are you talking about? They go, we'll give you your flights, a phone, a train pass to get around the city, and and we'll give you housing. And I'm thinking, damn, that sounds pretty good. Um, So I get there, and they they pick me up at the airport, and it's nighttime, and they take me to this, like, weird sort of campus. I go, what is this place? And they go, it's a hospital. (laughs) So the next day, the sun is up, and I'm walking around. I'm trying, where the hell am I? And uh, I come to find out I'm living on the largest functioning mental hospital in Germany. 
a, a real functioning mental hospital. I mean, there was a, there was a, a real a big fence and wall around one of the buildings on the campus because it was like there were murderers housed in there. This is crazy. I know. And uh, w- they take us to the airport at the end of the season, and uh, they go. By the way, you guys are so great. The foreigners last year complained so much about the mental hospital <laughs> that we got them apartments in Munich. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and we had never said anything, dude. We just stuck it out. I mean, six months is a long fucking time to do that. Nate's only friend was his roommate, a Dominican dude named Paulinho, who spoke zero English. Nate does not speak Spanish, but the two of them were inseparable, clinging to each other in this completely crazy situation. I mean, dude, I would go to the little library on the, in the hospital to, like, check out books. And uh, there would literally be pictures of doctors in, like, Nazi uniforms on the wall. I don't even know how to process this. Like, I know. I didn't either, dude. But somehow you, somehow you coped. Yeah. That was my one season that I got to enjoy just for what it was without an expectation that something else was going to happen. You're liberated from the cycle. From the expectations, yeah. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. I don't think Amit or I were ever able to liberate ourselves in that way musically. For me, the specter of success was always there, always driving me forward. And when I didn't get it, I was empty, just like Nate had been. But Jacob did manage to do it. When he decided he probably wasn't going to be a Broadway star, he moved to Ithaca with his family and started acting more than he had before. And the incredible thing is that the moment that had made him quit being in a regional theater production, just like Nate had played fast-pitch softball, they were both now finding beauty in the same things that had been humiliating before. Yeah. Somehow the the focus on the result has really disappeared for me. I love it. And I yeah. don't quite know how it happened. I envy that. And I don't know, am I jealous of that or I envy that? I don't remember which one is the one. That... <laughs> <laughs> I, re- I respect you so much for that. Oh, thanks, man. It just seems like the process and the result are separate. The process is important. The result, less so. I think... At times in my life, that's been true. And for me, when the result has been more important, it's made me miserable. When I'll be in a play and all I'm thinking about is, oh my God, the director hates me and yeah. the reviews are going to come in and I'm going to get slammed. And and then I'm just, oh, it's, it's the worst. But yeah, I think when I'm at my best is when I'm really focused on the process and, and creating meaning with the people I'm working with. And that's exactly what Nate was doing. He comes home from Germany happy and done. He had found peace in his last season playing pro ball, and he was ready for whatever lay ahead. What he had no idea of was that what lay ahead was some of the greatest successes and hardest heartbreaks he had ever experienced. Next time on First Time Long Time. The music you've heard in this episode was from Mine and Amit's Musical Journey. You heard Tara by Benny Girl, Come Angel Come by Jason Liebman, Closer to Konnichiwa, Love of My Life, and Go Up by Itself by The Bischoffs, and right now you're listening to 456 by The Action Painters. 
In addition, you heard Autumn Woes and Believe in Me by Ryan Little, Am Trans and Starling by Pottington Bear, Night Owl and Something Elated by Broke for Free, and Cash Rules by Ari De Niro, all of which came from freemusicarchive.com. This episode was produced with help from Naomi Azar, who refused to let me off the emotional hook. There's more to come from Nate in part two, but in the meanwhile, you can find him on Twitter at KingOfJBaseball. I'm at Aaron Wolf, and I've been looking for a sign-off, so in lieu of one, let's listen to one of the worst home run calls I've ever heard from the Israel Baseball League. This one is way back, way back, and yellow by. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. It's the first run for Petal Tikva. What a way to welcome a new league. What better way than that way? Ryan Croton, a bomb to left field, and it's 8-1 Modine.